Welcome to day 167 of Journey Through Scripture. Today we're going to be looking at 1 Kings 1, 1 through chapter 2, verse 12, and then Acts 10, 23 through 11, 18. All right, let's begin with 1 Kings. Uh, this continues this uh, basic history of Israel, uh, as is sometimes called in Old Testament studies, the Deuteronomistic history, so-called because it's kind of framed within the categories that Deuteronomy sets forth, and uh, there are uh, elements of the history, particularly in how the kings are evaluated, various kings of Israel, um, that line up with language and concerns that are expressly made in Deuteronomy. Um, whether or not that's uh, kind of the, the whole story, I'm not going to go into here, but uh, that's just a term sometimes you run across in Old Testament studies that is helpful for us to know. Um, so here we find King David old and advanced in years. Uh, just how incapacitated he is by his age is unclear. Uh, it seems that some of the people in the story maybe overestimate his, uh, his lack of awareness, perhaps uh, some senility or something. And the first thing we're told is about how he can't get warm. And so uh, it, this, this appears to be some kind of chronic problem. Um, and, and his servants say to him, let a young woman be sought for my Lord uh, to wait on the king, be in his serv service, and lie in your arms that my Lord the king may be warm. Um, I think here is a good place to remind us all of the, the distinction between descriptive and prescriptive narrative in Scripture. That is, is the text merely describing what was said, or it's saying, go and do likewise? Um, I think that here we have a good case for that, that this is not particularly a good strategy for an old man who's having trouble getting warm. Bring a young lady in, have her lie with him, and that should take care of things. There is some similarity also between what is done here and uh, and his son Amnon. Remember, Amnon wanted to get with his sister, or at least his half-sister, Tamar, and uh, this suggestion was made to him to, to, to feign sickness, and she would come in and serve him. Uh, one can't help but think of that, which suggests at least that this may not have been a suggestion t totally out of left field. Maybe it was something that was done. Um, the other thing that I think we uh, should keep in mind here is that we have seen that one of David's Achilles heels is his uh, indiscretion with women. So there may be some kind of link here with that as well. But as soon as we're out of that, we go into another narrative here, and this one has to do with the throne succession. So David's fourth son, whose name is Adonijah, uh, exalts himself and proclaims himself as king. Uh, this is the, the transfer of rulership from one generation to the next is often a problem, both within the Bible and throughout all history, um, when there's some ambiguity as to who has been appointed to be be king, and uh, it's 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 hard to know whether Adonijah's motives are sinister. Like, does he know that he has not been chosen by his father to be king, uh, or is there some other 
uh, is, is this somewhat innocent. The fact that he goes and tries to do it outside of Jerusalem and in private suggests that he knows that this is not something that David would have been behind and is kind of taking advantage of his father's um, old age. And so he goes and he he assembles men around him. Uh, and uh, the among those who support him are going to be Joab as well as Abiathar the priest. So Joab uh, is the famous military commander of David who often goes over and beyond what he's supposed to do often in the forms of in the form of violence and then Abiathar is the priest who is the final priest in the line of Eli and they support him but several times in this narrative we are told of the primary supporters of David those who did not go with him in fact they're not invited to do this uh, to proclaim Adonijah king presumably because Adonijah knew very well that David's most loyal servants would not go after him. And that is um, another suggestion that Adonijah knows that what he's doing is shady and is is wrong. Uh, but, um, but those are going to be uh, Zadok the priest, um, so he's the other high prominent priest uh, during the reign of David, Benaiah, the son of David's personal bodyguards, um, and then Nathan the prophet, recall Nathan's the one who uh, called David out, for example, when uh, Bathsheba, uh, during the Bathsheba incident, he's also the one through whom God revealed the Davidic covenant to him. And then you have a few others, Shimei, uh, Shimei is probably not the Shimei of the house of Saul who cursed David when he he left Jerusalem. Uh, also, Rei, Rei is, uh, that means my friend, by the way, in Hebrew. Remember, Itai, the Gittite, with me. And uh, as, and so David's mighty men, the closest as well. We're not with Adonijah. Uh, the other thing, I guess, uh, to say about this uh, kind of initial intro to this episode is that um, Adonijah is described as being very handsome, so similar, I guess, to his brother Absalom, but also something of his motivation is giving that his his father had never at any time displeased him by asking what why have you done thus and so so that suggests um, a level of being spoiled um, by his father not not really being uh, denied anything so that perhaps added to his the character of why he why he did this okay so Nathan then is the one who wants to convince David that wants to inform David that this is happening and convince him to go otherwise so to do otherwise because these people who are with David and not with Adonijah not only are they are they with David and not wanting his sons to go behind his back but they are also supporters of David's son Solomon and his his kingship um, presumably because this is what David wanted this is as we'll see this is something that David a desire that David had expressed for Solomon to reign after he passed away so Nathan um, goes to Bathsheba, and Nathan, it seems, is specifically—I I don't want to say pro-Bathsheba, but it is um, interesting that one of the other times that we meet Nathan in the book of Second Samuel, he's um, rebuking David for having wronged Bathsheba and her family. Um, so he goes to Bathsheba, who by this time uh, seems to be um, a very faithful wife of David, uh, how she's worked through the wrong that David did to her and her um, late husband. 
uh, that's not discussed. But uh, here we find a Bathsheba who's very respectful to the king and who, uh, as far as we could tell, is firmly embedded in the royal family. And Nathan goes to her and, uh, and tells her, uh, brings up the Adonijah uh, situation and says, uh, you need to do act swiftly if you're going to save your own life and the life of your son Solomon. So it's not really about, uh, it's not really an appeal to her patriotic duty or anything like that. It's that um, your lives are in danger. As history often tells us, uh, that this is a very dangerous time to be a rival to the throne when when the when the throne is contested and uh, uh, one easy way to get rid of a rival is to knock them off and uh, the character of David's sons is apparently in question as we've seen in some of the other narratives especially with Absalom uh, this is it's not as if he's got all these choir boys um, lined up. Uh, in his household, but there's actually danger here. So he he tells her, go into the king um, and remind him. And this is the first time we're hearing about this. So it it's it's intriguing, and I suppose there's wiggle room to suggest that she's kind of that this is Nathan also coercing an old man. That could be a little bit of a, um, a pessimistic reading of this, um, a suspicious reading of it, that Nathan is planting this idea in aged David's head. Um, but there's no disproval in the narrative that I can detect of what Nathan is doing here. So I think this is simply speaking of something that ha- that we're just not told about. But she is to go in and remind him that Dave, to remind David that he had he had decided to put Solomon on the throne and that Adonijah is being proclaimed king. So appealing to the king to act in accordance with his own wishes. And then the plan is that while she's still speaking, Nathan will show up and tell him the same thing to kind of underscore the urgency of what is happening. So Bathsheba goes into David's chamber. She bows down and the king uh, who loves and cares about Bathsheba by this time, um, asks her, what do you desire? And she does just as Nathan has told her, and she tells him about Adonijah and reminds him about about Solomon and re- tells him about the the people who have gone out to support him. And, and then she tells David, the eyes of all Israel are on you to tell them who shall sit on the throne. Otherwise, it will come to pass when my lord the king sleeps with his fathers that I and my son Solomon will be counted as offenders. So then Nathan the prophet does come in and uh, he also bows before him. He tells him the same thing and is uh, only his approach is a little bit different. He's like, hey, did you say Adonijah shall reign after me? Um, he shall sit on my throne because he's gone down and he's sacrificed oxen, cattle, sheep in abundance and invited all the king's sons and commanders of the army and Abiathar the priest. And they're eating and drinking before him saying, long live Adonijah. Uh, has has this thing uh, been brought about by my lord the king? And have you not told your servant that who should sit on the throne of, of my lord the king after him? Like, did I miss something here, David? And David um, has Bathsheba brought back in, 
and swears to her, as Yahweh lives, who has redeemed my soul out of every adversity, you think back of David's long and storied life, um, I, I did swear, Solomon, your son shall reign after me, and, um, and this is what's going to happen. And so David has Zadok and Nathan and Benaiah, his most prominent supporters, brought to him and commands that servants be taken and that they place Solomon on his own mule, uh, uh, David's own mule, so the, 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 I guess the royal transport here, and brought down to Gihon. Gihon is a spring that, the spring that provides water for Jerusalem. So, uh, so the part of the plan here is let's, uh, let's, everybody needs to see me proclaim Solomon as king. So there won't be any question in the eyes of the people who I, whom I've decided uh, should reign after me. Uh, whereas Adonijah is at Enrogel and he's doing kind of this private thing with a bunch of elites there. Um, let's do something. Let's do this in public so that everybody knows what my decision is. Blow the trumpet, okay? and uh, proclaim, long live King Solomon. So what they're saying of Adonijah, let's say, of Solomon. And uh, then um, he'll come sit on my throne and be king in my place. Uh, the, 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 the idea being proposed here is what is known as co-regency. And this is one way in ancient times uh, that a king could ensure who the, that, that the person he wants succeeding him will indeed be um, be reigning, and that is, if the, if if he begins his reign while the previous king is still alive, uh, that way, as the other, as the first king, as his father passes on, uh, his he's already reigning. So there's no chance of this happening. Someone stepping in and proclaiming themselves king, or or some kind of throne usurpation. And um, so they they go and they do this. Again, to underscore the, the public aspect of this, uh, the people are playing on pipes, rejoicing with great joy, so that the earth was split by their noise, it says. And then Adonijah and his guests hear about this. Uh, it says that they hear the sound of the trumpet and the sound of the, the music. And um, Jonathan, um, Yonatan, as, as you would say in Hebrew, um, who's the son of Abiathar, you might remember he was one of the intermediary spies when David was ousted from Jerusalem by Absalom. He comes in and, um, and uh, to, to Adonijah, who welcomes him, uh, come in for you are a worthy man and bring good news, but he brings nothing but good news for Adonijah, at least. He says, no, for our Lord King David has made Solomon king. And... Um, He's got Zadok and Nathan and Benaiah, as well as the, that, the bodyguard that Benaiah is over, the Carathites and the Pelethites. He's riding on the king's mule. They've gone up. There's rejoicing. The city is in an uproar. Uh, the, the noise that you have heard, that's what it is. And, uh, Sol and this all means what we fear. Solomon sits on the royal throne. And not only this, but David is proclaiming his pub public approval of this. He has said, Blessed be Yahweh, the God of Israel, who has granted someone to sit on my throne this day, my own eyes seeing it. And again, there we have the idea of co-regency being expressed. Then in chapter 2, we are given David's 
uh, final instructions to Solomon. He says, I'm about to go all the way of all the earth. Be strong. Keep the charge of Yahweh, your God, walking in his ways, keeping his statutes, commandments, rules, testimonies, as it is written in the law of Moses, that you may prosper. This is, um, this is of course, the most important thing for any of uh, any of the kings who will reign on this throne now to know that you put the keeping of God's law first, that you need to keep the, the, the ways of the Lord as your top priority above everything else. Uh, so this is, and, and whether or not Solomon will live up to this remains to be seen, but that is the primary instruction that David goes to his, gives to his son. Um, now, and, and then you get this abbreviated um, reminder of the covenant, essentially, so that Yahweh may establish his word. Um, if your sons pay close attention to their way to walk before me in faithfulness with all their heart and with all their soul, you shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. Of course, whether or not the sons do, in fact, live up to that is something that remains to be seen. Uh, and uh, he also reminds them now of several individuals who have wronged the house of David in some sense, who need to be dealt with. So he mentions Joab, and these several times when he has gotten over David's head, and um, especially, as he says, in, com- in killing the two commanders of the armies of Israel. So you have Abner, the son of, of Ner, and you have Amasa. Both of these were men who were initially enemies of David, Abner being the commander of Saul's army, and then uh, Ishbaal's, Ishbosheth's um, uh, uh, attempt to reign um, from the house of Benjamin. Uh, but then he came over to David, he defected, and Joab killed him because Abner had killed Joab's brother. Uh, so in, in revenge. And then Amasa, who was the uh, head of Absalom's military force who came out after David. Uh, David attempted to appoint him to his own army, essentially giving him Joab's place. And then out of apparent jealousy, perhaps a perception that that this guy wouldn't be good for David, killed him before day. So very much going over David's head and and murdering uh, in order to do that. So he tells him, act according to your wisdom and do not let his gray head go down to Sheol in peace. Sheol being the abode of the dead, the grave, the underworld means die. Uh, this is an expression which was uh, which Jacob uh, used of himself dying back in Genesis 42. He also uses it in Genesis 44, uh, the gray head going down to Sheol in, um, in peace. Um, and then he tells him who to deal loyally with, uh, Barzillai the Gileadite. This is the guy who who had been who had provided a ton of support for David when he crossed into the Transjordan, fleeing from his son Absalom. And uh, the son, uh, presumably, he's not called a son there when that happens. But Kim Ham is the one whom Barzillai sent back to Jerusalem with David because David was like, "Come, come to Jerusalem with me, and I'll honor you." And Barzillai's like, "No, I'm too old. Um, so take 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 Kim Ham instead." So, you know, deal loyally with these guys. This is to be there you're to show favor on them. And then you have some others mentioned whom Dave, whom Solomon is to um, bring justice to. So you have Shimei, and this is the supporter 
of the house of Saul. Again, that's why we know that the Shimei earlier in this text is not the same guy, but he's the one who cursed David when he left um when he left Jerusalem and when he came to David repentant, David was like, no, this is not a day for shedding of blood. Um, I'm giving you a pass. Um, but nevertheless, he, he cursed the Lord's anointed. He says, do not hold him guiltless. Uh, you know what to do. And then uh, David, we're told, slept with his fathers. David passed away. He was buried in his city, the city of David, Jerusalem, his total reign is given 40 years, seven in Hebron, 33 in Jerusalem, 40 being one of those big round biblical numbers. It could be the actual span of David's reign could be give or take a few years, but given that this is the only number we're given, we kind of have to go with it. And uh, finally, our reading today ends with this comment. So Solomon sat on the throne of David, his father, and his kingdom was firmly established. All right, let's now go over to Acts chapter 10. We're going to be looking at 1024 through 1118. So here uh, we saw yesterday uh, that the the Lord had appeared to a Gentile uh, commander in the Roman military force who was a God-fearer, a God-fearing Gentile, and told him to go to Peter and to send for Peter because Peter had something to tell him. And likewise, uh, Peter, who was praying on the roof of the house of Simon the Tanner uh, down in the city of Joppa, uh, he, is, he is told about this after having received this vision of all kinds of unclean animals, which he was commanded to, ki- to kill and eat, the idea being that God has made clean all that was unclean. And... and so, so Peter should no longer, and, and the church, Christians in general, should no longer uphold these things as important ways of maintaining access to God. So this, this serious advance in theology and understanding of the nature of God and how we are to approach him and everything, the idea that Jesus has indeed made all things clean. So... Um, so Peter has been sent for and is coming to Caesarea where Cornelius is, and he's there waiting with his relatives and his close friends. Uh, Cornelius, when he meets Peter, falls down his, at his feet and worships him. This word worship, um, clearly when used with God, is worship, <laughs> but there's other times when it might simply mean prostrating oneself. Uh this, this is both the case in the New and the Old Testament with the words that are, that are used. Um, they're, they're very close in meaning. Uh, in the New Testament, in Greek, it's proskuneo. In the, uh, in the Old Testament, it's hishtachava. And they, uh, so he does this to Peter, and Peter, however, realizes that this is inappropriate. He does take it as some high degree of religious reverence, at least, stand up for I too am a man. Um, uh, this is in line with Peter, how he's been throughout Acts, right? That he's constantly drawing the tension off of himself. You can think of the, what he said following the healings. Don't think it's by my own piety or power that I've made this man well. Um, and then also um, after the raising of the little girl, um, we see that attitude as well. And he goes in, he finds many people gathered to hear him, and, um, 
and and tells them, you know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or visit anyone of another nation, but God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. Uh, it's interesting that Peter does interpret that vision that way, right? Do not call um, unclean what I have called clean. Initially, this is in reference to animals, but here it's in reference to persons. And uh, one thing to keep in mind is that this was closely associated in the Jewish mind of the day, which is one of the ways in which their uh, understanding of what God wanted of them, of what was expected of them from God, had become warped, right? Because if you read the Old Testament, uh, there's no place really in which the, the Gentiles, the nations, are to be treated as ritually unclean in and of themselves, like that contact with them would have been a problem for worship, that you, you know, that this would have rendered you unclean. Rather, it was uh, the animals and their practice and some of the other practices, so like what they eat, what they ate, some of what they did, that would have made them unclean. But here, it's the person, the contact with the person, right? And so in this effort to avoid uncleanliness, the Judaism of the day had tended to fall, stray into this direction where they just want to be separate from the Gentiles because they don't want to become defiled. But this, of course, short circuits Israel's mission to the Gentiles. Like, how are you going to go and be a light to people if you're not willing to be among them? And that becomes a real problem. So, um, so, so Peter then um, is told by Cornelius about his own vision, about how he was praying in his house, that a man stood before him in bright clothing. Of course, he's describing an angel here, and this is uh, how we, one way in which we're to think of angels, that if you actually saw one at times, it would just appear to be a man. We've seen this a bunch of times, right? Like at, at the empty tomb, for example, when Jesus went, was ascended into heaven, they appear just as, as men, but often in bright clothing. And he tells Peter about how he had been told to send to Joppa to ask for Simon um, and uh, tells him, well, now you've been kind enough to come. We are here in the presence of God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. And uh, Peter then speaks and he tells them, uh, he begins with talking about how God does not show partiality, uh, but every nation, in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. So um, really nodding, nodding to Cornelius's God-fearing posture and the goodness with which he has acted all these years. And he tells him, as for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, you yourselves know what happened through all Judea. So there's, there's, they have a knowledge of Jesus. There's, there's an understanding of this man, Jesus of Nazareth, and what, what happened. Um, how he went about doing good and healing, and moreover, we are witnesses. So this is the apostolic testimony, right? They've seen these things. They are the apostles who are sent. This is one of the things that makes one an apostle, is to be a witness of all he did in the country of the Jews and Jerusalem, but also of this, that they put him to death on a tree, and that God raised him uh, and made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who have been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank after him after he rose from the dead. So this, this credential for any true apostle is given here. And now we have been commanded 
to preach, to testify um, of uh, that he is the one appointed by God to be the judge of the living and the dead. So essentially, the gospel message is given here. And um, he also mentions the prophets bearing witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. And uh, there are a number of prophecies in the Old Testament that Peter may be alluding to. Um, the idea that there is going to be forgiveness through God's Messiah. Uh, two very prominent uh, passages that uh, that he may have in mind here. Uh, one would be Jeremiah 31, which is the chapter that um, that foretells the giving of the new covenant, that there will be a new covenant with the house of Israel. And there in verse 34, um, it's, uh, it, it talks about how uh, they shall all know the Lord. All the, all the people of the new covenant shall know the Lord from the least of them to the greatest. And why? Because I will forgive their iniquity and remember their sin no more. So that might be one thing that he has in mind. Another prominent passage, and again, we could go to others as well, but uh, in Ezekiel chapter 36, um, verse 25, this is um, another one of these kind of prominent uh, New Covenant passages, um, but it but it says, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses, and from all your idols I will cleanse you. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put in you, and I will remove your heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. So this idea that accompanying uh, what accompanying this messianic age, accompanying what God will do for his people to redeem them in the future is this promise of forgiveness of sins. And as he's saying these things, it says the Holy Spirit falls on them and uh, and, uh, like the whole house, this crowd that's gathered there, and um, the people who have, who are with Peter, who are identified as people from among the circumcised, that just here simply means Jews. This doesn't mean this pro-circumcision faction within the early Christians. Uh, They are amazed at this because the gift of the Spirit is given to them, and they're hearing them, and they, they know this because they're hearing Cornelius and his household now speaking in tongues and extolling God. Now, I talked a little bit about this in chapter 2. They're speaking in tongues is defined as speaking other earthly languages. And as I said there, I see no reason why to think that this would be any different. Luke does not describe it in any different way. It seems quite satisfactory to simply say that he describes it in chapter 2 and then expects us to know what it is in the rest of, the, in the rest of um, uh, his narrative. And so they're doing this, and the idea here is that this is the signal that the same thing that happened to the Jewish people back in chapter 2 is now happening to the Gentiles. So this idea of the, 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 uh, the Spirit um, uh, coming upon the Gentile world, fulfilling this vision that was set up in Acts 1.8, because we saw this with the Samaritans, although their speaking in tongues is not explicitly mentioned, but the giving of the Spirit is. And this is extraordinarily important. The fact that the gospel now is truly for all nations is that this is the breaking in of that. This is when we see that. And so it's very important that evidence be given that this is indeed what is happening. And so uh, the, the Peter then has them baptized um, and 
uh, in the name of Jesus Christ, and uh, and he remains with them for some days. Uh, another thing I'd like to mention here is that this is um, an example of what some of the, something that we see in Acts, which is household conversions, entire households being converted. And here we have a little bit of a detailed picture of that. And uh, sometimes this plays into the discussion over infant baptism. Uh, you know, you have whole households, you know, so later on we'll see so-and-so was baptized and their whole household, and it's suggested that infants would have been baptized as well. I do not personally hold to infant baptism um, because I don't see the biblical basis for it, and I think it runs contrary to some stuff in Scripture. Um, we'll talk about some of the uh, some of the reasoning behind that uh, in, in future days, but I just want to point out here that here where we do see this household baptism, uh, the impression is certainly that everybody who is baptized there is responding to the gospel. You don't have people who aren't old enough to respond. Uh, you know, you don't even have infants mentioned, and that's an important point in these household baptisms, that it's simply an assumption that those households have infants in them. And uh, think about how how few households you know who have infants in them, right? Like, how likely is it that infants were there and were baptized? It is quite an assumption to think that just because we see households being baptized, that, that babies are are among them. We're never explicitly told that that is something that has to be read into the text and and assumed. Um, but, yeah, that's, that's what we have here. We have an entire household embracing faith in Christ. Um, so the, this eventually uh, reaches the rest of the church, the apostles and the brothers throughout Judea, um, and uh, Peter goes to Jerusalem, and the circumcision party, okay, so this is different than the men from among the circumcision, the believers from among the circumcision, who are mentioned in verse 45. Here, this is the circumcision party, the kind of pro-circumcision advocates, Um and we'll see what that means exactly when we get to chapter 15. Um, but these are people who do have this kind of like more hardline standard Judaism. And they criticize Peter. And it's interesting, right? Like, again, remember what I said earlier, that the issue in the Old Testament is the eating of unclean things, the contact with unclean objects and things like that. But here their problem is the thing they kind of show this, what has become of this understanding in Judaism. You went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. So their problem is not what he ate, it's, who he, it's whom he ate with, and that's a problem. Uh, I mean, aside from the fact that all food has now been declared clean, and that's not an issue, they haven't had the vision that Peter's had. Um, but the thing that compels the church there, everybody kind of being cautious, because they want to follow God's God's uh, God's ways, right? And it's not entirely clear what they're supposed to do with this early on. This has not yet, this, this thing, their thinking has not yet developed. Um, and this is a big step towards that happening. So Peter explains to them what happened, and their ultimate conclusion is, if then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, remember the connection of the giving of the Spirit, tongues, um, and, and followed by their baptism, who was I that I could stand in God's way, Peter says. And they say, it says that when they heard these things, they fell silent. And they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also, God has granted repentance that leads to life. 
Okay, that's it for today. As always, I thank you for being with me, and I very much look forward to being with you tomorrow. But until then, keep reading scripture, take care, and bye-bye.